Hello, and welcome to this week's The Proteomics Show. This is season two of a special limited series called The Faces of U.S. HUPO, sponsored by U.S. HUPO. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne. I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Neely, and this week's podcast featured Dr. Ralph Bradshaw, who's Professor Emeritus at UC Irvine, and he's the first lifetime member of U.S. HUPO that we've been able to, to wrangle in for a podcast. That's right. Yeah, uh, we obviously got to have a fun conversation about how he started, kind of get into being on the ground floor of when this weird proteomics thing started, and just a ton of fun tidbits and highlights throughout. Really enjoyed it. Hope you do too. Hello, and thank you for coming to talk with us today, Ralph. Thank you. You're welcome. So yeah, this is kind of a fun one for us to do, and I'm going to start not where we probably should start, but I I mentioned this, you've got a really beautiful library bookshelf behind you. It looks very large. Like how, how big are we talking? Oh, about three or 4,000 books. I, I, I love this. Yeah, it, it's because, of course, this is a podcast, so you can't see it, but it's it's this beautiful, you know, like when you see pictures of, of libraries. And, it, and is that something, is it just like books that you've accumulated? Are they fiction, nonfiction? This is, a, is this a hobby? Is it a passion? It's a combination. Yeah. A lot of it's fiction, of course, but most of it, you know, that's mine is mystery novels. And um, my wife has a different taste in, in, in literature. A goodly section of it is a uh, about a six or seven hundred book collection on ghost towns and in, in, in the, mostly in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. For many many years, when I first moved to California in '82, we used to spend uh, summers ghost hunting, which is people sort of raise their eyebrows and say, "What's ghost hunting?" But somewhere out there in the great western part of the state, although interesting enough, there's ghost towns all over America, but most of them are west of the Mississippi. And there's some 6,000 ghost towns, most of them in pretty inaccessible places. Most of them came about as defunct mining operations, although there are, you know, any any cause of a, to, that caused the economic collapse of a town would cause it to become a ghost town. So sometimes it was farming ghost towns, you know, the farmland dried up or the water dried up and people just up and left. And these ghost towns ranged from fully uh, structured houses that you could walk in and there's still dishes on the table and, you know, clothes in the, in the, in the closets to just sort of ruins, you know, foundations. And, barely, you know, able to see where the town was. So, and everything in between. So for 25 years, we had our four-wheel drive truck and we would go all over, you know, the West during the summer months. And so I collected books on ghost towns. And I've actually, as part of my will, have left this collection when I'm finished with it to uh, UC Irvine, and it'll go in their rare books collection. I thought you were going to say ghosts, like I live in Charleston and, you know, we have lots of ghosts, but no, you're like bumming around in ghost towns, like legit, like, like around you and there's, and there's books. And I, I assume, can you collect things from these places? Oh yeah. There's a, there's a little section over there in the library with little artifacts that we've collected over the years. Like, are we talking things like, what are, what, what's the weirdest one? Like uranium glass? What, I know that's kind of a weird one that you see turn up places. It's like the green glass that like glows, but... Yeah, glass. Yeah. Actually, what bottle collectors like purple glass. Um, 
and we have some purple glass, but um, you know, it's it, they're nothing very valuable in my collection. They just sort of mementos of our trips. Oh man, I that that's that's really that's I I mean I I love it. You know, there's all these like post-apocalyptic shows are kind of the rave in the last decade, and to film those, you know, like Walking Dead was just South Georgia. And I assume, yeah, you can find one of these towns, but you're there. They're remote. I mean, it's got to feel pretty eerie. Well, you know, as I said, there's an enormous range from some towns that are totally inaccessible. And, you know, I mean, sometimes finding these towns was a major operation. I can remember times when it took us a whole day to find a town. Because when GPS came in, you know, it's sort of in the latest stages we were doing this, then GPS and, and topo maps made it a lot easier to find these towns. In the early days when, you know, we only had the topographical maps to go by. And of course, the topographical maps would be 50, 60, 70 years old. And you'd have to go by the contours of the mountains and the rivers and so forth, which hadn't really changed in order to locate yourself on the map. So it was kind of like a detective story. So you can sort of see a theme here. I like mystery books. I like the challenge of finding ghost towns. And and then we'd walk around these ghost towns and try to figure out if there was nothing really written about them. We'd try to figure out from what was in the towns, what it was that went on there and, you know, sort of the, create the history of, of, of the town as much as you could. It's amazing what you could figure out just from looking at what was still lying on the ground, so. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm glad we did this um, <laughs> and asked this, but we, we did end up talking to John Yates for like a half hour about steroids and never got to his research. <laughs> <laughs> I sounds like John. <laughs> yeah. Proteomics and ghost towns. Okay. I, yeah. I would listen to that show, Proteomics and ghost towns. That's a, yeah. I'd, I'd watch that all day. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the, the the show has been mostly about the people um i think that's what we've been able to get away with for us Upo, but i think that, that we should touch on the research some and okay yeah so yeah, it, it's hard to pick and choose among you know through your history your cv and some things but uh i guess what is it that you that you've done right that that you really Okay, well, starting back at the beginning, you know, I trained as a protein chemist. I was a student of Bob Hills at Duke. And for the first, oh, 20 years following my graduation and, and postdoc, I did a lot of protein sequencing and done a variety of different proteins. But the thing that really sort of set up my research and what I certainly would probably become the most well-known for and certainly what led me eventually into proteomics was growth factors. This started when I was first, my, my first position was at WashU in St. Louis. I was P. Roy Vagelos's second hire when he first went to WashU to set up the, you know, rekindle the department there. I had only been there less than a few weeks when a young lady came to visit me from the biology department on the main campus. and. And her name was Ruth Angeletti, and she had just finished her PhD studying with Rita Levi-Moltacini. And Rita, if you remember, was famous because she discovered nerve growth factor. And she received the Nobel Prize along with Stanley Cohen for their, their joint discovery of nerve growth factor and epidermal growth factor. 
And so Ruth wanted to, to come and spend a year in my lab studying uh, NGF. She had been doing some chemical modification on the protein and wanted to continue doing that. And one of the reasons why I took the job at WashU was because there really wasn't any other protein chemist at WashU at that time. And so it was attractive to, to sort of set up shop in a place where people were doing a lot of great research and were looking for a protein chemist. And I hadn't been in, in WashU six months and I had six or seven major collaborations. So it was, it was ideal if you like to collaborate, and I do. So we started working on nerve growth factor and basically discovered that, that the molecular weight was only half what it was originally thought to be because they hadn't really the subunit structured correctly. And so it turned out to be only half as big. Uh, it was a dimer of identical chains. And so because it was only of about 120 residues or, or thereabouts, we decided we could continue to, to sequence the protein, which we did. And it was the first growth factor that was sequenced. Stanley Cohen sequenced DGF about six months or a year later. And that got us started working on growth factors. And over the years, you know, we de determined that nerve growth factor was had a lot of similarities to the protein insulin. And this suggested that, that it, nerve growth factor was a hormone-like substance. And, you know, at the time, that was really rather, very revolutionary because hormones were thought to be made in one cell type and travel through the blood to another cell type, and nerve growth factor clearly didn't operate that way. So it was before the understanding of autocrine and paracrine, you know, types of, of interactions, you know, along with endocrine in the interactions. So we proposed that NGF was related to insulin and this created quite a bit of controversy, but it turned out to be exactly right. And from that, it became logical that it, it had cell surface receptors. And I can remember Snyder at, at Johns Hopkins, you know, published a paper on this, as did Eric Shooter, the late Eric Shooter, you know, from Stanford, who was also one of the big pioneers in the NGF field and in our lab, of course. And all three papers sort of define the fact that nerve growth factor worked through receptors and therefore was hormonal-like, at least in that respect. And from there, we went on to study the receptor or the properties of the receptor. We actually isolated the, the first discovery of the track receptor for NGF, um, although it was not until it was cloned by another group, yeah, that the details became, became clear. And over the years, then we got into the signaling mechanisms. And of course, this as you can see where this is going. This led us eventually to post-translational modifications being induced by these receptors and post-translational modifications are basically synonymous with a major part of proteomics. And so when the proteomics field sort of burst on the, uh, on the scene in the late 90s, you know, right around the millennium change, proteomics looked very attractive to me as a way to extend our studies on. By that time, of course, we were working not just with NGF, but we were working with EGF, with FGF. In fact, FGF is another major part of the story. We, we were the first to discover the acidic form of FGF, so-called FGF1 now. That's an interesting side story because 
I'm involved with a company that's that's developing FGF1 for use in ocular diseases and in stage two clinical trials that have so far have been very successful. So that's an actual success story of, of bench to bedside if in fact it, it finishes up being as good as it looks like it's good. But they, uh, that's separate from the proteomic story. So in uh, the late 90s, I started to collaborate um, with, with a couple of different groups. Uh, Ruth Angeletti was in those days at, at Einstein. Hal was up at UCSF, and we had collaborations with both of those groups going on. And then in 2000, the ASBMB held a retreat of its offices and a lot of past offices and so forth which I was invited to attend. And they, among other things, decided that, you know, they should expand their publications activities beyond the JBC. Um, and uh, so they sort of got involved with the journal Lipid Research, which they eventually took over. This was a pre-existing journal that, that had been operated by just a private group for, for a few years. And then they decided to start a, a journal de novo, MCP. I was sort of tapped to organize this and the council approved it. And so I then realized that I, at this point that I needed to get a real card carrying proteomics person involved. And so I went up to San Francisco and drank a lot of wine with Al Burlingame and convinced him to become the deputy editor of, of, of MCP. And I guess the rest is history, you know, from that point on, the, my involvement in proteomics was was heavily involved in MCP and defining the kind of the guidelines for publishing that MCP was really very much involved in in the early days, particularly. And at that point, you know, I finished my sabbatical in, in Cambridge, England in 2004 with Tom Blundell and decided to retire and go up to San Francisco and work with Al and extend the you know, analysis of growth factor signaling in his lab and be the deputy director of the mass spec facility at UCSF and together run the journal with Al. So that's sort of my research background. Glad to amplify on any points, but uh, that sort of covers the story of where I came from and uh, how I got into proteomics. Wow. Okay, I, I, I do have questions in, in terms of, so, so, so some context on the, the growth factors, like the NGF, when, you, when you're sequencing that. Is, is this Edmund at the time to, to work that out or what was yeah, the technique? This was 1971. Okay, yeah. So it was like in the really early days of, of, of protein chemistry, sort of sequencing. At the point of time when we did NGF, I think there was only probably three or four dozen proteins whose sequence had been determined. So, yeah, it was the first growth factor. Uh, it wasn't the first hormone, but it was the first growth factor. Yeah, but it was done manually. We did finish up. It's kind of a curious story. We did it all by hand. I should say Ruth did it all by hand. I mean, uh, you know, I just sort of directed things. And but the time when I first moved to to wash you, even though I had done quite a bit of burning sequencing, particularly as a postdoc, first in Indiana and then in Seattle. 
And so I had probably sequenced more residues than almost anybody else at that point in time, because I did carboxypeptidase, 307 residues and two myoglobins in, uh, in Indiana. And, you know, those are 150 each. So, you know, I sequenced about 600 residues of, of protein, which, you know, by 1969 was a fair amount. Anyway, so that, that was about the time the protein sequencer was developed in, and became commercially available from Beckman Instruments. And so I applied for, um, when I was an assistant professor, I just started at WashU, I applied to get my own sequencer. And of course, I was turned down because I was just a new kid on the block. So they gave out, you know, a bunch of these sequences to all a bunch of old senior people, none of which had sequenced a residue. But, you know, they had big names. So one of my bitches to this day is how the NIH sometimes decides, you know, where to give them, spend their money. Anyway, that's just a personal little film. So I had to go back to Seattle to my, my former colleagues in Seattle because they had two sequences out there, you know, because Neurath was a big man and, you know, he got whatever he wanted. And so Mark Hermison, who was a postdoc in the lab, then uh, ran the NGF, did the internal sequence of NGF. And so he, that's why he's, you know, on, on one of the papers you know, describing the, the sequence. But, you know, the N-terminal sequence was only confirmatory. We were able to sequence it all by hand. So it just confirmed it. And it actually detected a, a, a microheterogeneity that occurred in the protein where the first eight residues get chewed off if you, you know, not careful how you make the, make the protein. It gets chewed off during the isolation procedure, so, which we would never have discovered without the, the N-terminal. Sequence, so. Thank you for that. And, and, I, and I think that I can share that grape. I feel like the NIH, I think they like, it's a penalty, right? If you actually know how to operate the instrument that you're trying to get them to buy you, right? Like, well, yeah. sometimes, you know, you know, we, 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 we got to remember who actually does the work and, you know, it's the young people in the lab, you know, and that was when I was a young person. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Thanks for, you know, providing that background. You know, so go back to like MCP. I mean, not not that this is like a major moment because I have some other things I want to ask too. But you know, you are kind of this old school protein chemist, right? And you're you're thinking of yourself. You feel a little outside of this emerging field. What what happened at the meeting where you're like, yeah, I'll I'll do that. Like, there's you saw a need, and you're just like, I'm gonna take on this task, and then I'm gonna go grab Al to, to help? Like what, what was the motivation there? Like what, what was, what were you feeling or drove you to that? You know, it's a very good question. I'm not really sure that I can honestly answer it because whatever drove me to say yes, you know, it was something that I, I like to say it was a vision that I could see, you know, proteomics emerging. I think to some extent that, that that's true, but it was a new challenge. I had been an associate editor of the JBC for about 15 years at the time when, when this started. And frankly, I was getting a little tired of the JBC. Um, you know, it's a great journal, it's still a great journal, but it's, you know, it's so massive. It's, a, it's hard to feel like you've got a really personal touch 
I mean, there was at the time when I this this was happening, there was probably 15, 20 associate editors. It it was so big that that you know you didn't feel personally connected so much. And when you know the idea of starting a new journal, you know, appeared, you know, it it was just very exciting to me. You know, it's and you know I didn't. I have to admit that I agreed to to to, to at least look into this before I even really had a good feel for what proteomics was all about. But you know, in the late nineties, this the the actual decision to first to to, to start MCP was made in two thousand. Proteomics was really in its infancy in in in, in two thousand. We still didn't have the human genome sequence available, you know. And and as as I've written, in fact, I just wrote an article for the for the Australian Journal of Chemistry. A cele- I, I think it's appeared now, but. If there was an issue that was celebrating Ed Neese's, I think, 75th birthday. And, you know, it's an old friend of mine. I have lots of connections to Australia, and it is among many. And he asked me if I would contribute a, a piece. And I said, well, I'm not doing any more research, Ed, but I've always wanted to write a little piece about the history of proteomics. And he said, perfect. So I wrote this this piece about the history of proteomics. And, you know, in it, I, I sort of make the point that, you know, you can date proteomics from the, a lot of people date it from the, from the O'Farrell gel, the close O'Farrell gel, 2D gel, you know, papers. I think they're 1973. But other people date it from when Mark, you know, coined the term proteomics, which I believe is 93 or 94. But, you know, I actually really date the beginning of proteomics from when the human genome came up. To me, that's everything was preamble until the human genome became available. And then proteomics took off. And so I sort of think that proteomics began at the time when the human genome came, which is about the time that MCP got off the ground. And maybe it's self-serving to say that's when proteomics began, but, you know, that's the way I like to look at it. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I love that it kind of it coalesces at that point, right? It was kind of floating maybe around and it kind of all... Well, there was certainly lots of things going on in the 90s that were essential to the development of proteomics. But, you know, proteomics didn't really coalesce until the genome became available. Hmm. Do you... Uh, something that has come up, I know, like with us, but also as we talk to people, is, is sometimes people make choices... For a couple of reasons. One is, I think, frustrations, like they're just mad about something and they set out to do it. But then sometimes it's it's like with proteomics, for you, it might be like you saw an emerging community that, that you enjoyed, right? Like I think sometimes for me, I like I study sea lions, not necessarily because I love sea lions, but because I like the veterinarian studying sea lions. Like at that time, like at that meeting, you know, did you have a feel... You know, you kind of looked around like you saw this this massive JBC and then you saw these other kind of these newcomers. And you're like, yeah, I, I'll get involved with those guys. Like what I mean, what, what was it? Was that part of it, too? Or, well, I mean, you got to remember this was the, the, the MCP was born at a retreat. OK, it was held outside of Dallas Airport in, in Virginia at a little resort there. It's not far from the airport. And it was a, a bunch of old ASBMB types, but these were all friends of mine. I mean, I've been in, in the member of the ASBMB since 1971. 
So, I mean, this, these were people, and I had been involved in the governance. I was treasurer, you know, in the years leading up to, I was treasurer from 91 to 97. I had served on council before that, an associate editor of the JBC. I had a lot of connections with the, with the ASBMB, and I knew all these people. So they were all friends of mine. So among them were a lot of protein chemists sitting around saying, you know, this, this idea about a proteomics gym is interesting. And, you know, I, it, at the time I said, yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. So I, I flew home thinking about it on the plane all the way back to California, I think. Now there's, there's, there's something there that, that, that's interesting to me. And so I sort of did a little bit of research on what was going on with proteomics and, um, and it didn't take me long to realize that not only was was this an up and coming field, but in fact it was also you know this you know that. And I have to admit at this point, you know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about mass spectrometry. It was just another tool. So the more I read about mass spectrometry, the more I realized that this was a very powerful technique. And so I sent a note to Dick Hansen, who was then the president of the ASBMB, an email and said. You know, about this idea of starting a new journal, I, I think that this is a great idea, you know, Dick. And he wrote back to me and says, great, why don't you propose something? And I said, oh, okay. So I jotted off, you know, a couple of pages of, you know, a Word document and, and sent it to him. And he said, this is fantastic. And the next thing I knew, you know, they were saying, we want you to organize this. And so that's when I realized that I had to get some help. And that's when I said, oh. And I knew Al because both Al and I had been consultants to Baxter. Although we never actually worked on the same project together. I knew him from the fact that he was consulting with them at the same time I was. And so I had actually done a little modest collaboration with him prior to that. And so I knew him well enough to call him up and say, oh, you know, I got this proposition for you. And so he said, well, come up to San Francisco and we'll talk about it. So rest is history. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So, so did you, did you primarily collaborate with mass spectrometrists or at some point here? Yeah, you well, ended up- well, I did until I went to UCSF because I didn't have any mass spectrometry. And, and there was nobody in, at UC Irvine in those days that, um, that was doing mass spectrometry. I think they probably had a modest little mass back over in chemistry, but, you know, nothing that anybody could use, you know, for the application of proteomics. In fact, I mean, that's another story. When I decided to retire and go up to, to UCSF, I sort of handpicked my successor, which was Lan Wang. Lan had been a postdoc of Al's, and you know they were looking to bring mass spectrometry to UC Irvine at that point. This was 2006. And so I sort of laid the groundwork and, you know, for her to get the appointment. So she took over my labs. I'm therefore personally responsible for bringing mass spectrometry to use the Irvine. So. That's, that's a nice exit gift, right? Yeah, it was. Well, it was awesome. You know, I mean, one of the reasons why I decided to retire in 2006 was that I decided it, it reached the point in my career where I didn't really want to take the responsibility of, of students and postdocs. And when you take students and postdocs in your lab, you're not just taking in workers. You're taking people that you're accepting responsibility to 
develop their careers, to, to, you know, act as a mentor. And, and, you know, it's, you know, in, in my view, it's a lifetime commitment. I'm still in touch with many of my students. I just didn't feel at that point that I could really continue to do that. I was interested in, in getting involved in mass spectrometry. And so what I did was I, I called up Al. I said, you know, Al, I'd like to come up to UCSF and, you know, spend a little time in your lab. And he said, I'll do you one better than that. I said, I'll make you deputy director of the mass spec facility. And I said, wow, I guess I can't say no to that. And so, of course, by this time, Al and I have been working together on the journal for four or five years. So we knew each other pretty well. Sounds like you're bad at retiring, to be honest. I, it sounds like you're bad at retiring. Uh, you're, no, you're bad retiring. At retiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife says the same thing. <laughs> so, so how many of the tools at UCSF were, you know, well, I think, you know, I think most people in the world think proteomics UCSF, they have these amazing tools that have been online for, you know, for, for my entire career. How many, how many of those things were there? Were the protein- Prospector was there. Prospector was developed before I went up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was been pretty much avant-garde with the development of mass spectrometry. You know, some of the technology was developed in his lab and others was developed elsewhere and incorporated into his lab. But, you know, he's always been blessed with really good people too. At least, you know, all the time that I was there, I was there nine years, you know, Chalkley and you know, Kylie Mazeroski and uh, just excellent people. So, I- you have so much perspective on on the how, where where the field is. I, what what are you most excited about where it's going? Well, I mean, you know, I think that the the holy grail of proteomics, the holy grail of all biomedical research, is to get translatable, you know, results that help people's health and and support the you know the human race, you know, whether it's you know, ecology or food production or medicine, you know, the reason we do this is, you know, so that the knowledge acquired will, you know, make life better on this planet. So, you know, in my view, you know, that's the same for proteomics. Um, it's getting eventually the translating, you know, the, the findings into, you know, particularly medicine, but not just medicine, all of biology and all of the applications of biology to uh, to the human existence. You know, I mean, I think that if you go back to the beginning of proteomics, you know, right about the time that MCP started, I wrote an editorial, I think it was the first editorial I wrote for MCP about saying, let's not be careful to overhype this new technology because it's got great promise, but, you know, it has to develop. I think that was in response to the fact that uh, really early on, there was a lot of articles that appeared in various and sundry places suggesting that, you know, proteomics was going to solve all the problems of, of science and all the rest of biochemistry and cell biology and whatever could shut down because proteomics was going to do everything. And uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, there was a lot of hype. It, it was, you know, catalyzed a great deal by the fact that the human genome, you know, the combination of the human genome and proteomics were going to make everything, you know, possible. And, and you know, 25 years later, proteomics is developing, but it's still got a ways to go. The reality is that, you know, proteomics is enormously powerful, 
but it's going to develop. And then there are still developments waiting to happen with proteomics, you know. Um, I mean, we're getting down to the single cell and, you know, content that, that is probably going to be the most meaningful, you know, breakthroughs are going to come from this, but it's still cutting edge. I, I, I think the overhyped thing is well-deserved for that period of time, because I often feel like I get in these conversations and this, in, you know, in Genome Alley with someone who did proteomics in 2005 and is still mad about it. Right. <laughs> I think I, I think we felt that here. And I don't know like if, if geographically if the Mid-Atlantic really just spent a lot of money right early in and and there was some maybe some overselling from vendors, et cetera. But I've, I've definitely felt that. But I mean it's the perspective thing. <laughs> you know, it's it's really curious to me, Ben, that you know, despite this over you know, hyping that, you know, particularly in the, in the first few years of the New millennium. The NIH never bought into it. I mean, the support for proteomics from the NIH compared to, say, other um, aspects has been, in my opinion, pretty minimal. I won't go so far as to say abysmal, but it's not been very impressive. You know, that is something that I never have understood because I don't understand how the NIH runs anyway, but, you know, it's, it's to me, you know, here was a technology, overhyped or not, it was clearly in technology that was going to make great breakthroughs in our understanding of basic biology. And yet the amount of support from the NIH compared to other, in my opinion, less productive areas of biology has been, you know, striking. I still muse about that 25 years later. Yeah, that, that comes up a lot here. I think there was a point in... 20, I think it was 2017 when, when Hopkins uh, spent, I think like $3 million in mass spectrometers, but Bert Vogelstein, like one independent investigator, spent $20 million in RNA-seq reagents that year. Yeah. And they, yeah. <laughs> so, taken. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's a overhyped and underinvested is what I wrote down. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, the NIH didn't overhype it, but uh, you know, yeah. but they but they are responsible for the un, underinvestment. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether it's because they, you know, I've often just analyzed this in my mind, and I, you know, the best thing I could come up with was that they never had the people there who understood the technology. There's no, there's not a lot of hardcore mass spectrometry at the NIH. There's a little bit, but there's not a lot, you know, compared to, say, sequencing, DNA and RNA sequencing, etc. You know, just as an example, there are certainly other areas as well. I'm not sure I understand why that is, you know. I mean, it may be that the basically the origins of mass spectrometry are chemistry. Um, and, you know, like it or not, the NIH is biology-driven. The leaders at NIH are quick and, and correct to point out that, you know, their mission is to make sick people well, and it's not to do chemistry or physics or math. And, you know, in the early days, back when I was a youngster, you know, they didn't understand so well, you know, the importance of chemistry and, and physics and, and math to biology. I think that came a little bit later, but, but uh, you know, they never really acquired, you know, some of the tools of these other disciplines 
that are so important in the interfaces of biology with, with, with the rest of STEM. Maybe this is the reason that they never bought into proteomics. I mean, I think maybe one of the things that slowed proteomics down was that when it first started, and I remember this vividly, there were a lot of different technologies that were, were, were considered to be important in proteomics. There was, you know, any kind of hybridizations, you know, and rays and, and of so forth. And 2D gel electrophoresis was still very much, you know, in the boat. And mass spectrometry was only one more technology. It, it took a, several years before it became really the dominant technology. Uh, and eventually became, for all intents and purposes, the technology. I, and I think that, you know, one of the things that, that probably held proteomics back was the fact that as, as mass spectrometry took over it, it didn't have the champions, you know, in the, in the NIH that it needed to have. And, well, that's my theory. Yeah, I mean, we've heard from like so many people's stories when they're coming up that they have trouble or they don't have trouble, but it was always fortuitous that they found like a biology department that liked a chemist or they found a chemistry department that liked a biologist. And I don't think we had heard this perspective in terms of NIH, but I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like they were cool with it when it was gels, when it was gel paper electrophoresis, when it was like sequencing and fluorescing. But the moment you brought like in a mass spec, they're like, whoa, Hold up. Who yeah, are really, you? In the early like, days of mass spectrometry, it was really the technology by a handful of labs. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it took a while for mass spectrometry to become sort of, shall we say, commonplace. When I first went up to UCSF, you know, there were a handful of labs in the world you were doing, you know, and you could count them on two hands. Sure. So, what, I mean, I know, let's just, you know, if you could pick your perfect situation like moving forward so not you know 25 years but like right now i mean is there like a path forward to convince the nih or like do we need to do like a big pr push like should i just quit my my day job and just go up to bethesda and just like walk the halls is it like having somebody big like on ostp is it like what what level or is it even possible? Has have, have we has it already lost too much ground, and now it's well, that's too, that's too pessimistic. Okay, good. That's on, the, awesome. on the other hand, it's it's still, in my view, an uphill battle. Yeah. One of the things that I did along the way was that uh, first as part of the ASBMB, and then um, as in the early nineties, I'll tell you a story. I was on sabbatical in in Germany. Um, in Axel Ulrich's lab in Munich. And I got a phone call from, from Liz Neufeld, who was then president of the ASBMB. And she said, our representative of FASAB has dropped out and we need somebody to fill, fill in that place. And we want you to, to do it. And I said, why do you want me to do it? And she said, because we're looking for somebody we think that can be elected to be president. And I thought, yeah, well, that's nice, Liz. I mean, you know, I didn't realize you were part of my fan club, but uh, I said, okay, I'll do it. And the next thing, you know, I know I'm going to fuss up board meetings, and the next thing I knew after that, I was elected president. And so I spent 
several years from 94 to 96, basically, as being first president-elect, then president, and then past president. And as part of this role, I spent a great deal of time on Capitol Hill because that's what the president of FASAP does. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I got to know the halls of Congress pretty well. One of the things I learned was that, you know, it's incredibly important for scientists to be active in public affairs. This was something that, that I had heard, you know, sort of coming up through the ranks in the in the 80s. But it wasn't until I became president of FASAP that I realized how crucial it is And the fact that, you know, whatever support we have had from Congress has really come about because of the the fact that, you know, it's a relatively small percentage of all the practicing scientists who take the trouble to go to to Washington. But, you know, those who do have really done science a great service. And and so in response to your your question, Ben, do I think, you know, going to, to Congress and and trying to make a case for for technology. The answer to that is, yes, you should do that, but it's not going to help the technology like mass spectrometry because it's become very clear that when you go to Capitol Hill, you don't really argue for any given technology. You argue for support of biomedical research. And then, then you have to turn around and go to the NIH and make your case with the NIH. So it's it's a two, two-edged sword. You have to convince Congress to give NIH the money, then you got to convince NIH to spend the money the way that, you know, you'd like to see them spend it. You know, you can spend an awful lot of your career doing both of those two things, and I have. You know, I think it's time that was well spent, and I'm glad I did it. I'm I'm glad you brought up the the FASA because we didn't get to that part earlier. So yeah, no, absolutely, and I think we probably all have have a lot to thank you for there. If you don't mind, like, can I kind of loop kind of back to something bigger? So I'm kind of I don't know. I guess we're mid career, uh, Ben and I, and it and it feels you know like I don't think you're quite as old as me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, but no, but but like it it feels kind of you know the the life segments. I feel like they're almost maybe 10 year-ish segments. And every time I get to the next one, I always look back and kind of wonder what was I doing or man, I wish I had known these things. But then also uh, I struggle, I see other people struggle and I, and I see this as something I have to work hard on is to be able to have longevity, right? Like to, to maintain the excitement, the passion, um, and just like not burn out. You know, we, we have families. I have three kids, Ben has one, balancing all that. And so I guess not that you have like the answer to life, but you know, are there some kind of tips and tricks, you know, um, both professionally and personally, like how do you kind of maintain that longevity and that happiness? No magic formula. Right. Harking back to something you said at the beginning of your remarks, life sort of comes in 10 year segments. I actually agree with that. When I look back at my career, it was, it could be sort of segmented that way. I spent the first well, after postdoc, I spent the first 13 years, really, but it, you know, it was counting at WashU. And then I went to California in 82 and spent the next 11 years being chairman of the department. And then from 92 onward, I was very much involved in FASUB and 
and ASBMB, and then in 2000, I took on MCP. And then finally, you know, spent nine years in San Francisco doing mass spectrometry. So not really 10-year segments, but not too far from it. And in each one of those periods, I had very different interests and very different pursuits. To what extent that I'm still alive and kicking, you know, I attribute to the fact that I didn't get in a rut and spend 50 years doing the same thing. I spent, you know, a lot of time doing different things. And for me, that was pretty, pretty essential because I get bored real easily. So there are some people that can do the same thing day in and day out for 50 years, but I'm not one of them. So I guess my advice is, if it's advice you're looking for, is keep keep the pot stirred. I like it. That, that, that was great. I mean, again, I, I don't think there there is a, a magic bullet, but it's good to hear. That's, I think that's a really good one because I think it's universally applicable. Yeah, I think you find a lot of scientists with short attention spans. So uh, hopefully anybody listens to this would be, uh, find that <laughs> an yeah, asset. Well, I certainly have a short attention span, so I can agree with that. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm out of questions. I guess, thank you, Dr. Bradshaw. Thank you, thank you so much. I, I'm delighted to talk to both of you gentlemen. It's been kind of fun to think about some of these things. I have spent time thinking about them in the past, but probably not so much recently. So it was kind of fun to you know think about them again. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. At this point, we have to wrap it up. And so first off, the views expressed are solely ours, not our employers, US HUPO. We want to thank U.S. Hupo for sponsoring this series. Johannes for our intro music and exit music. Kaylee Kirkwood for the artwork. You can find us wherever you get podcasts, which wherever you're listening, please like, subscribe, thumbs, stars, whatever. And yeah, thanks. Bye.